I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to start off um, this message with a premise. I, I was asked several weeks ago to, uh, to do a devotional for sermon audio uh, for our, our regular prayer meeting, and I did a, a short synopsis of this, but I thought that this really deserved to be treated in a little bit more uh, extensive detail. And I'm going to start off with a premise, and our premise is this, our passion for prayer our passion for prayer is born from our passion and our affection for God. Plain and simple. If we really love the Lord, if we really have a passion for God, that's going to be reflected not only in our attitude toward prayer, but it is going to be reflected in our prayers. And the simple supposition is this, that a high view of God will drive passion, persistence, and power in our prayers. John Bunyan, you guys know John Bunyan, right? The gentleman who wrote A Pilgrim's Progress said this about prayer. To pray rightly, you must make God your hope, stay, and all. I love that. To pray rightly, you must make God your hope, your stay, and all. Right prayer sees nothing substantial or worth being concerned about except God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my, my favorites, writes, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and his highest when he is upon his knees and he comes face to face with God. Two substantial attitudes toward prayer. You'll notice that both, neither of their comments deal with getting what you want. Prayer is about worship. Prayer is about believing. Prayer is about faith. Prayer is about coming before the eternal, everlasting, all-omnipotent, all-knowing God. R.C. Sproul made this statement that I also love. Every great theology starts and ends with doxology. Doxology is an anthem of praise. It's when you come to every great theology, it begins with God, it ends with God, God is in the middle, and you can only find yourself coming out of it saying, praise God, praise God, praise God. The psalmist stated in Psalm 24, verses 7 and 8, he says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord told Moses in Exodus 34, 6, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to a third and fourth generation. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 40, verses 25 to 26. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. 
Oh, I had an opportunity this week to do that up in the mountains this weekend where we went out and it was nighttime and the, the stars were just all over the sky, crystal clear, cold night. And I thought about that very thing. Look at this. Look who made this. This is the God that we come to pray before. And if we don't come with that kind of mindset that this is the God whom we worship and we serve, then we need to correct that mindset. The prophet Isaiah says again in Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed. There will be none after me. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. You know what the church in America needs? Needs to know that He is God. The eternal. That there is no other that any other civilization has faced what we have faced and even worse. But God yet remains. He is God he says again in Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Our view of God will drive our passion for God. That's as simple and as basic as it gets. Our view of God will drive our passion for God. If we have a low view of God, then our passion for Him and our passion for prayer will reflect that. Let me tell you something. I've said this a million times in my life. I have never seen a person who professes the name of Jesus Christ, who neglects prayer, who neglects meditation in the Word of God, who neglects the forsaking of, of gathering of the believers to God, who is faithful, powerful, strong, and mighty in the things of God. It's like going to a bodybuilder contest and getting somebody who doesn't eat, someone who doesn't nourish his body, somebody who doesn't work out, somebody who doesn't exercise, and then see them win the competition. That's absurd. But yet there's an absurdity in our cultural Christianity that says we can live that way. We can neglect the things of God. We can neglect God, but I'm still going to be strong and powerful for the Lord. No, you're not. You're going to be prey for the devil. That's what's going to happen. If we have a high view of God, a view most benevolent, just, holy, powerful, sovereign, all-knowing, all-seeing, final authority, God, then our hearts will be turned to Him in adoration, in worship, and in praise. And I think that's also a profound truth. As we come to that place where we come to know God and be known by God intimately, it is just a reaction. Praise begets praise. And we fall in this place where we're in just adoration and worship of the true and living God. Paul knew such a God. Paul knew and worshipped and adored his God. 
And it started with this, uh, I started this message with a premise, and that is our passion for prayer is born from our passion and affection for God. And now I think it becomes really important because as a culture, we're about to embark on a time, we're about to embark on a season where the, one of the greatest things that God ever did by giving His Son is going to be blurred out and it's going to be obscured by consumerism, materialism, myth, fantasy, romanticism, all the other different stuff is all going to be smudged and wiped away. We're going to get caught up in chaos. We're going to get caught up in the rush. And the last thing we're going to see is the beauty of our Savior coming in the form of man to redeem man. Paul in his great epistle of Romans is about to conclude the doctrinal portion of this epistle. Having just shared one of the greatest historic, having just shared about the greatest historic doctrines, the pravity of man, uh, justification by faith, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, the election of God. And as he comes to an end, he bursts into this doxology of praise found in Romans 11, beginning with verse 33. As he recalls the greatness and the vastness of the Lord God Almighty. Take a look at Romans 11.33. Paul says this as he begins to conclude this doctrinal treatise. He says, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Stop right there. Notice as he goes out, Oh, this is a massive thought. This is a revelation that comes to his mind. He has just taught, he has just preached on all these things. And Paul has a momentary pause there where he goes, Oh, my goodness. Look at this, the depth of riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You know, there's a terrible sin happening today. People are no longer impressed with God. We think we know it all. We think we're good. And so consequently, we come and somebody would encourage us with a word of God. We say, but I know that. But I know that. Hey, the greatest, the most humblest Christians, the servants of the God, of of the living God, have been the ones that have come. And every time they come, they find themselves in awe. They find themselves in splendor. They find themselves enraptured in the magnificence of who God is. Such was the Apostle Paul. In verse 33, speaking of God, he continues, he says, How unsearchable are His judgments! and unfathomable His ways. Who can know the mind of God? God is still stupendous. God is still, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are are, are higher than all thoughts. We cannot come, but a terrible thing happens when we begin to bring God down to our level. When we begin to use analogies like, well, God thinks like this because... I think like this or that. No, His ways are unfathomable. You can't figure out the mind of God, nor should you even dare. And there's many times in our Christian walk and there's many times in our Christian experience where we have to stop and pause and say, I don't know why this is. 
Listen, I do that multiple times a day, multiple times when I say, I don't know why, Lord, we can have a place of our own. I don't know why, Lord, we're in the situation that we're in. But Lord, I'm going to press through. Lord, I'm going to continue to hammer through. Do whatever you want, but I'm going, I'm going forward. And that's the resolution that every single Christian needs to make up in their mind today. It may not make sense. Many things in the kingdom of God doesn't make sense. You think it made sense when, when Goliath was taunting the armies of Israel going back and forth and a little 13-year-old shepherd boy comes up there and he's going to take them on? No, it didn't make sense. Even his brother said, shut up, drop the lunch and go back and take care of the sheep. But God used a 13-year-old boy to say, who is this infidel that dare blaspheme the name of God? untrained in war, wasn't in the army, had no weapons with him, wouldn't even take armor with him. What do you have? A slingshot and five smooth stones. And he said, hey man, I'm going to take you. You guys are all cowering over here. I'll take Did that make sense? Did it make sense when God came upon Gideon and said, hey, the angel of the Lord said, Hail, mighty warrior. And I could just see Gideon going, what? You got the right? No, you're not talking to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to use you to deliver my children Israel. But there's 20,000 out there. Yeah, you're going to do it with 300. Did that make sense? Did it make sense that the Lord of glory should come down from heaven, take the form of a human baby, be born through a female woman, Right, And to be born in a manger among all the stench and everything else and to come in a very humble, ignominious birth. Does that make sense? Does it make sense that He died on the cross to, for an atonement for sin, bloody, battered, beaten, besmirched, cursed, everything? Does that make sense? God's ways, praise God, are not our ways. His thoughts, praise God, are not our thoughts. Look at verse 34. Paul, expounding upon this now, goes even further. And he quotes from Isaiah 40, uh, 40 19, and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him? Quoting from Job. And all of that as he contemplates everything he has shared in this particular epistle, as he contemplates everything that he has shared with this church of Rome, as he has a moment to pause and to gather his thoughts, he comes to verse 36, which I think is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, where he writes, For of him and through him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. We get to see a real emotional response of the Apostle Paul. And he is floored by the vastness, the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the power, the omniscience, the omnipotence of Almighty living 
God. And I can only say that we who have been given greater revelation than the Apostle Paul, we who have been given the full revealed Word of God, how much more should we be when we come before God? It's verse 36 that I really want to focus on. And in particular, I want to focus on three prepositions in verse 36. And those prepositions are of, from, and to. Those are the three words, the three prepositions in that verse that I want to focus on today. And I believe that what we're going to see as we we dive into this text is going to reflect a heart of deep worship. It's going to reflect a high view of God. And it's going to form the passion of the Apostle Paul's heart, which fuels his prayer and his praise. Now that's great that it did it for the Apostle Paul. And it's great that I could show you that it did do it for the Apostle Paul. But the Spirit of God wants you to know this is how you can fuel your passion and praise. The Holy Spirit would speak to us and would call us back to Himself to say, this is the heart of passion and prayer. Let's take a look at the first preposition for from or of Him is everything. Of can be translated either of or from. Everything is of or from God the Father. Can we get an agreement on that? Can I get an amen? Just testing. All is God's. He is before all things. We know that from the very, very, very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And what did He do? Created the heavens and the earth. Our God is eternal. Our God is omniscient. Our God is omnipotent. Our God is ineffable. Our God is immutable, meaning He never changes, needs nothing, is not dependent on anything or anyone, is self-satisfied and self-existent. Please, don't ever buy into the premise That why did God create man? Well, God saw He created everything and He was really lonely and He wanted somebody. No! God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. God doesn't know need. If God knew need, God could be manipulated. God can't be manipulated. God is self-contained. He's all-glorious. He's all-magnificent. He is the source of the universe. And within the Godhead of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is a harmony and a holiness that can never be broken. Never Never be broken. There aren't petty jealousies in the Godhead. There isn't contention in the Godhead. The Godhead is harmonious. Is unity, perfect, 
unity. Do you realize that everything with God is perfect? Everything. If God speaks a word, it's a perfect word. If God has a thought, it is a perfect thought. If God creates, it's a perfect creation. Everything within the Godhead is harmonious and perfect and good and holy and right and just. Our God is the source of all truth. Jesus made this known in John 17. Verse 17, he said, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. God is the source of all truth. Truth is maligned today, isn't it? Remember, Pilate, it goes back to Pilate, right? What is, what is truth? Now we say that, right? What is truth? Oh, you can't really know who wrote the Bible. You can't know. You ever played a game of telephone? Yeah, there goes wise thinking for you. You know, one guy says something and then it goes around the group and then before you know it, it has an entirely different meaning. That is the Bible. I hate to say it, but only ignorance can produce a response like that. Our God is the source of all goodness and mercy. Our God is the source of all that is beautiful and lovely. Do you notice what the world calls beautiful today? God is the source of all beauty. God is the source of all good. Paul made this known, he said so eloquently in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul, in one of these, another moment of a great doxology, said this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Notice that. The Apostle Paul, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Of whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, he goes on to, to say, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The passion that fuels our prayer starts and ends with the nearness of God. Is He lofty? Is that your view? Is He treasured? Is He high and exalted living God testified to in the Scriptures? If we are near to God, we're going to see God that way. If we're close to God, we're going to believe God that way. We're never going to be in a situation where I don't know. Again, the prophet Isaiah says this in, verse six, in uh, chapter 63, verse 16. For thou art our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer from old is thy name. Do you view God as your Redeemer? Do you view God as your Savior? Listen what Jesus said. Matthew 6, 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy 
is thy name. Listen, a lot of times there's commentary on this that it is reflecting the name of God. But what Jesus is doing transcends beyond a mere definition of the name of God. What Jesus is doing is saying the person of God, the essence of God, God who He is, is hallowed and holy. 1 Peter 1, three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our God is our Redeemer. Our God is holy. Our God has caused the believers to be born again. Our God is everything. He is the source of all things, including our joy, our hope, our sufficiency, our provider. He is deserving of our very best, and from Him will flow His very best. The psalmist said, Delight thyself in the Lord, and He will what? He will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't mean if you're desiring a Corvette that God's going to say, Oh, I delight myself in the Lord. I'm getting a Corvette. The desires of your heart is the very near of God that is the desire of the heart delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you that he will give you his very best his greatest it is not contained in things it is contained in him it is contained in Christ it is contained in the Holy Spirit we need to translate our minds from the do this get that mindset to the mindset that says, I bow myself, I humble myself before the Lord, and the Lord is my reward. What could be better if the Lord is not your reward? Why is there so much frustration in the world? Why is there so much futility? Why is there so much frustration and futility among the people in the church? Because we're constantly searching for the next thing that's going to make us happy. And we fail to realize that the only thing that is going to make us happy is Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit. So we move on to the next gizmo. We watch the next commercial. We want the next thing. We get it as there's discontentment. We search for the next best vacation. We search for this, that, and the other thing. And we miss all along that the very thing that we're designed to have, the very fellowship we're designed to have, is right before us in God. And we substitute it for something cheaper. So for of him or from him are all things. Let's look at the next preposition. All things are through him. Now, <clears throat> this is a lesson that many need to learn. The term through comes to deal with how God does what he does. Let me say that again. The term through deals with how God does what He does. Simply put, this text refers to the means God uses for all things. Following me so far? God is both the means and the end of all things. Therefore, all things are through Him. And in this we see the glorious sovereignty 
of God. God's sovereignty rules about all. Let me be clear with this. There is nowhere, no person, no molecule, no atom in which the providence and the sovereignty of God does not rule. You understand? There's no rogue rogue atom or molecule in your body. There's no rogue DNA strand where the sovereignty of God does not rule. All things are in God's hands no matter how He chooses to play them out in our lives. A lot of people don't like that statement, I bet. Job 42.4, Job made this statement. I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. You hear that? And this is after Job repents. He says, I know that you are in control of all things, Lord God. Job's first step in in repentance, his first step in restoration and revival was the recognition of God's sovereignty and His hand in all things. We pray for revival, perhaps for our first step to be like Job, uh, Job, to recognize and believe that God is sovereign in all things. And when we come to that point of believing that God is sovereign in all things, it doesn't mean that we come to reconcile and understand why, 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 and why. Many times as we come to that place of understanding the sovereignty of God is a recognition of God's holiness and a submission. Father, I just submit myself to You in all of Your ways. You all remember Dan Garlic, don't you? Our dear friend who went to be with the Lord, who upon being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, pancreatic cancer, he called me to share the news of his diagnosis. And he said to me, Mark, he goes, they give me four months to live at best and obviously i was taken back by that and we were on the on the phone and after he made that statement he said you know what mark god doesn't make mistakes he went on to live 18 months but finally succumbed to cancer but then it succumbed to death I look at a guy like Dan who I remember that, that Mother's Day in 2000, uh, 2020, last year. He had told me a few days before that the doctors had told him, look, they don't expect me to see the morning. So we had a conversation and I cried. He cried a little. He encouraged me and he said, you know, I want you to finish well. I want you to finish well. And we sat there and we talked, and then Mother's Day, we're still alive, and here comes a FaceTime, and here comes that infamous Dan Garlic smile on the FaceTime, and he goes, praise the Lord, brother, I wasn't supposed to be alive, I saw another sunshine this morning, what do you say, we sing some hymns. God was sovereign in his life. Cancer didn't take my brother. God did at the appointed time at the appointed moment 
at the appointed second. And you look at a man like Dan Garlick until the last eight weeks of his life, despite having pancreatic cancer, besides having all the effects of chemotherapy, until about eight weeks, ten weeks before he went home to be with the Lord, was still traveling across the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. God was sovereign in his life. I think it's important for us to remember there are no rogue elements in the universe that are outside the sovereignty of God. Pastor, what about COVID? COVID included! What about this government? This government included! What about all those in Canada who are suffering for the cause of the gospel? This is included too! There is nothing that goes outside the sovereignty of God. But pastor, what about my circumstance? What about this issue? What about that issue? What about this other issue that's causing me consternation, confusion, and pain? Yes, that too. God is sovereign in all circumstances and works in all circumstances. And there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us we're going to understand every single one of those uh, circumstances to a T. It tells us to put our faith and trust in a holy, living, sovereign God who works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to His purpose. I think of the words of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, 36. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one could ward off his hand. Nobody could say to him, what have you done, God? There's nobody who could do that. For through him are all things. Let's look at the last preposition. The last one is, all things are to him. And this last preposition indicates God's purposes. Our God is the Alpha and Omega. We agree with that? He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. All things will culminate for His honor and for His glory. And while we look at a world that is in disarray today, and we look at a world that is in absolute chaos, and while we see evil running about more rampant than any other time that I could remember in my lifetime, God has never, ever, ever, ever lost control. God has never lost control. God never lost control in the election two years ago. God never lost control when COVID emerged. God never lost control during World War II, during the Civil War. God has never lost control. All things work according to the counsel of His will. And this world and the universe and all of history moves to His plan. And it moves for His glory. Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now unto Him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory by the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, world without end, Amen. 
Where does God's power work? It works in the hearts of those that are the believers. We become those that are the, become the movers and the shakers on behalf of God on the earth. Not all these politicians, not all these billionaires, not all these other stuff. My goodness, I often wonder, why do we envy any other person? We envy the unsaved. We go, oh, look at that guy, very, very successful. Oh, look at that one. That, oh, she's so successful. And this one's a doctor, and that one is this, and that one is that. And we walk around and we think like, oh, we should be all impressed. We are sons and daughters of the living God. My goodness, He is our Father. He has equipped us. He has enabled us with everything. We do not lack. Stop looking for the world to satisfy and look to God to be glorified and magnified. We know this verse, Romans 8.28, right? For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to His purpose. Probably one of the most used and abused and misused verses. I've seen many times where a believer, well-intentioned, will talk to an unbeliever who's going through a trial. And rather than share the gospel of Jesus Christ, will look at that person and say, well, God causes all things to work together for good. <clears throat> and that's where it ends. That's not what the verse says. As a matter of fact, if you go in Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about the sovereignty of God. And he said, under the sovereignty of God, for the children of God, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to His purpose. That's who God causes all things to work together. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you could clamp on to that statement. You could rest. You could apprehend that statement in faith and belief and say, yes, Lord, I may be suffering with a sickness. Yes, Lord, I may be going broke. Yes, Lord, people may be hating on me and doing all sorts of other mean things, but Lord, I will hold to the fact that you, oh God, will cause this for good. I don't know how. I can't see it. I don't see it in front of me. But Lord, I'm believing you. Father, you will cause this for good for those who love the Lord. So what's the point? We're here for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forevermore. Look how Paul has it, to Him be glory. I told you we have a momentary capture of an emotion of Paul and he's like, wow, look at this. Look at the God that we serve. And he ends it by saying, to Him be glory and honor forevermore. So how should we pray? We meet here to pray to God, to plead with God, to cry to God, to hear from God for a work of revival within the church and the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? But the object of our prayer is not prayer itself. I want to make that clear. The object of our prayer is not prayer. The object of our prayer is God. And it's the right view of God. The high and exalted God. The lifted up God. The glorious God. The God with whom nothing is impossible. 
He is the object of our prayer. The omnipotent, the sovereign, providential, holy, omniscient, glorious, majestic, transcendent, loving, forgiving, merciful God whom we love, whom we serve, and whom we adore. Let me share something. Without adoration, without love, our prayers will grow cold and stale. But when we fashion ourselves to pray according to the one true God revealed in Scripture, when we know experientially His presence, His grace and mercy, then our prayers will be fueled with passion derived from the knowledge of Him. And in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, our God desires worship and worship we must. It cannot be cheapened. My goodness, don't make your prayers. Oh God, I thank you for today for the beautiful weather that you've given us. I want to thank you for all the wonderful blessings. No, if you know experientially who God is, then that becomes the passion. That becomes the fuel. Brothers and sisters, our orthodoxy, our commitment, our church going in and of itself is not enough. Unless we come to that place of pure, clean, unadulterated love for Christ, love for God the Father, then I fear we might miss the whole point of grace and prayer. I started this message this morning by saying our passion for prayers is born from our passion or our affection for God. A high view of God will drive passion, persistence, and power in our prayers. And that is still my contention. But we must all ask ourselves and consider this very important question. Do we have a burning passion and affection for God? How is your prayer life? Do you even have a prayer life? Is prayer drudgery? Difficult? Routine? Do you experience the power and the presence of God in your prayers? Have you ever experienced the power and the presence of God in your prayers? If not, maybe, just maybe, you have allowed your love for God and for Christ to grow cold. Remember when Jesus was at the temple and a Pharisee and a publican went up to pray? And the Pharisee went first. And he prayed a prayer like this. Oh Lord, I thank You. I'm not like this dirt bag next to me. God, I give You, I tithe 38%. Everything I give, I give 30-40% to You, Lord. I'm here at the temple. You can find me here 26 hours a day. I pray so much, Lord, my knees are killing me. They got blisters. Oh God, I I, I just I, I've memorized the whole Torah forwards and backwards, backwards and forward. Lord, I thank you for not making me like this tax gatherer. And Jesus said that the publican, the tax gatherer, beat his breast. And cried, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked a question to those who were listening. 
Which one of the two went away justified? And the answer was abundantly clear. It was the man who was repentant in heart. The man who knew his position before a holy and right God. Oh, may it never be said about any of us that we become so holy that we forget that we are first sinners saved by the magnificent grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't have a prayer life. And it could be because you really don't know the Savior. You've never been born again. Maybe you know enough Bible and enough about Jesus to make you feel comfortable. And let me share something with you. That is possible. Oh, the devil is a liar, is he not? The devil is a manipulator, is he not? Will he not take the Word of God and twist the Word of God just to make you feel comfortable enough? But you're outside the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, place your entire faith and trust in Christ Jesus. The only one who can forgive you of your sins and save you. If you've not done so before, do it today. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ today. Be like that tax gatherer. Beat your breast and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In one moment, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And you can cry out to the Lord God to save you. Brothers and sisters, as we approach the throne of grace this morning, let us, those believers in Christ, let us lay aside every burden, lay aside every sin, lay aside every stumbling block, and let us, through prayer, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. May God be glorified in all things. May God be glorified in us and through us. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we bless You and we praise You. Lord, there are so many times where this Word is so much weightier, Lord, than what any man can give it. And Father, were it not for Your Holy Spirit, no one can have confidence in anything. But Father, we, we give You ourselves this morning. Father, if there are any here who have never come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and have never come, Lord, as I said, maybe they have enough Jesus, maybe they have enough church to make them feel comfortable. Father, will you break their hearts today? Will you rend their hearts? Bring them to that place of repentance and faith that they would cry out to you and say, God, save me a sinner. And Father, that they would come and be born again. And oh God, I pray for the church.
I pray, O oh God, rend our hearts. I pray, O oh God, that we would come to know the eternal, mighty God experientially, O oh God, that we would come and, and we would know experientially Christ and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That You would make us men and women after Your own heart, O oh God. That You would awake us from this doldrum. You would wake us from this lethargy, from this consumerism and this materialism, Lord. May You waken us and convict us when we seek to satisfy, Lord, with something other than You. Oh, Father, teach us what it means to delight ourselves in the Lord. And that, oh God, You would give us the desires of our heart. And as we pray always, oh God, not as routine, but we beg You, Lord. We pray for revival, O God. Send revival, O God. Send the fire from heaven, O God. Awaken us, Lord. Quicken us to life, Lord. Raise up a mighty army, O God, for the glory of Your name, that the kingdom of God would continue to advance on the earth, O God. And Father, and in doing so, May you receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, that there would be none of us here, Lord God, that would stand before you with empty pockets. Father, we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.